You are listening to the teaching podcast of Praise Community Church in Mason City, Iowa. For more information about our church, please visit praisecc.org. We're kind of continuing in a series. Uh, we're working our way through this summer. And we've really been kind of looking at, at some detail into probably what is one of the most well-known teachings that Jesus ever gave. As a matter of fact, this is one of those teachings that people who are not even in the Christian faith are, are familiar with on some level. And this is the Sermon on the Mount or the Beatitudes, and it's recorded there in Matthew's Gospel chapter 5. And, and one of the most often overlooked and I think misunderstood and maybe misapplied aspects of this teaching that Jesus gives there in Matthew 5 is that he's, um, he's giving us spiritual principles or spiritual practices in there that really are intended to be incorporated and applied in the everyday ongoing life of the believer. Some people maybe kind of read the Beatitudes, maybe they're a part of your devotional reading for that day, or, or maybe it's a, uh, just a, a scripture uh, that you're memorizing. And, and we oftentimes think, well, you know, once I've read this in the devotion, once I've memorized the scripture, we kind of just tend to move on to the next devotion, to the next scripture we're going to memorize. And we really don't understand, or we really don't comprehend the idea that what Jesus is teaching in here is something that is to be walked out every day. It is not just something that we recognize uh, or, or, you know, maybe do a one-day kind of application of that and then move on. It is really intended to be something that is walked and lived out in the life of every believer. So when we become aware of our spiritual poverty, you know, again, that, that deficiency between where we're at and where God would want us to be, again, it's not just a one-time repenting of that. It is an ongoing going, God, I am poor without you. Without you, God, I can do nothing. I can accomplish nothing. So again, it's just that everyday ongoing awareness, uh, it, again, is blessed are those who are aware of their continual everyday ongoing need for God, for they, uh, the kingdom of heaven is theirs. That's what Jesus says. Today's teaching is really no different. So far, we've looked at the blessing, again, of being poor in spirit, of being able to mourn, uh, again, that deficiency of what we see where we're crying out to God for more of his power, more of his presence in our life. Last week, we kind of looked at the blessing of meekness. Today, I want to kind of turn our attention and begin to look at the fourth beatitude there uh, in Matthew 5, uh, verse 6, and there Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Now most of us here, we know how to fulfill and to satisfy our physical appetites and thirst. Okay, the kind of hunger that Jesus is referring to here when he's talking about this thirst, he is not talking about something physical. He's talking about a spiritual hunger and thirst. And he says that this hunger and thirst is for a very specific thing. It is for righteousness. And he, again, that is a spiritual hunger and thirst. Unfortunately, the vast majority of Christians, uh, churches, we really don't understand 
We don't really have that hunger or that thirst, that desire for righteousness, much less an understanding of why does God give us that? Why does he encourage us to seek after that hunger and thirst for righteousness? And then how does he fulfill that? Again, we know how to satisfy our physical desires for food and water apart from God. You don't need God to fix a hamburger, to get a glass of water. What Jesus is teaching here is you'll never, ever discover true hunger and thirst for righteousness, much less have that hunger and thirst for righteousness satisfied apart from God. We have to do it in partnership, in relationship with God. The other challenge to this teaching that Jesus gives us here is, again, most of us do not associate having a hunger or thirst as a positive thing. Like the world, we view hunger and thirst as something to be avoided at all cost. I mean, for most of us, the slightest tinge, I mean, you can just even think you're hungry and we're off to the refrigerator to, to satisfy because we don't want this to become intense at all. So I think I'm hungry, I think I'll eat so that I don't experience any further desire. Uh, so we want to just, again, the, the, the slightest indication that we're hungry, we're thirsty, we immediately satisfy that. Whereas Jesus is saying here that having a spiritual hunger and thirst is a good thing. There's a benefit it, it is a pathway to blessing. It is something to be desired. We don't desire to be physically hungry or thirsty. Again, most of us, I mean, what we experience in terms of hunger and thirst, it, it really isn't hunger and thirst. A lot of it is just conditioned. We're conditioned to eating three times a day. I mean, if you, if you fast, you, you may approach that feeling of what it is to be hungry. But again, we don't really understand, we don't really comprehend this idea of what it is to truly hunger and thirst, much less see it as a beneficial thing. Jesus' teaching here is that, that this is a beneficial thing. It is something to be desired. It is something to be pursued. To be hungry and thirsty for righteousness is something we must ask God to give us. And again, that's just so counter culture to the way the world thinks. In fact, Jesus says one of the keys to having God's blessing on your life is we have got to not only get to a place of spiritual hunger and thirst, but there is a, a sense of needing to remain there, asking God deepen that, asking God intensify that hunger, that thirst for righteousness. Again, it, 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 it's counterintuitive to the way the world thinks and maybe to the way we've been raised. So what in the world is righteousness? If God is saying to us and Jesus is teaching that one of the keys to being blessed by God, uh, how do we... How do we do that? How do we generate? How do we intensify? How do we satisfy that hunger and thirst for righteousness? Now, righteousness, again, it's a big word in the Bible. 
I mean, it is literally used. You can do a word search, and, and it's used in, in a variety of forms, hundreds and hundreds of times in the scriptures. The Bible tells us, for instance, that God is righteous. That the word of God, the Bible, the scriptures are righteous. That God founded, he established the world on righteousness. The Bible says that God loves righteousness and he rewards it in the people that he sees it in. The Bible says that God loves righteousness and that one day he is going to come back and judge the world in righteousness. The Bible says that God has made covenants with Israel. God makes covenants and those covenants are based upon righteousness. The Bible, one of the most famous Psalms, Psalm 23, it says that the Lord is wanting to lead us in the paths of righteousness. So what in the world is righteousness? I looked it up in a theological dictionary and there were 27 pages on the definition. So I'm going to take just a half hour and read you those 27 pages. Actually, I read it for you, and I'll just kind of condense it down into two sentences. How's that? Okay, good. Okay, it's really about a relationship and a lifestyle. If you read the 27 pages, what it really speaks to are those two areas. It's about a relationship. It is about a lifestyle. Righteousness first simply means being right with God. That's a beautiful, beautiful concept. It is a beautiful, awesome invitation into relationship with God. Because one of the things that God wants to do in a relationship with you is he wants to bring you into right standing with him. That's incredible to me. That God desires, God is pursuing a relationship with you in order that in that relationship you can be in right standing with God. That is that relationship aspect of righteousness. Romans 1.17 says the good news, the Bible tells us, it shows us how God makes us righteous in his sight. This is accomplished from start to finish by faith. Now again, notice there in that verse, it is God who makes you righteous with him. You don't make yourself righteous with God. He makes you righteous with himself, and he does that through the accomplished, finished work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21 confirms this, where Paul says, He, referring to God, made him, referring to Christ, who knew no sin. Jesus was perfect he was without sin, and Paul says, God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf. Now, why did he do that? Well, Paul says, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That's that right standing. That's that relationship that God pursues and desires with every one of us. So righteousness is a work that God has done. It's finished. It's accomplished. It's available. It's ready this morning. 
And that has been made available to us, not through anything we have done or need to do. It is something that was accomplished over 2,000 years ago when Jesus Christ came to the earth, lived, died, and was resurrected again. It's done. It's finished. It's available. There's an invitation that God desires to be in relationship with you for many reasons. First and foremost is he wants to position you in right standing with him. Second thing righteousness is, it's a lifestyle. And that simply means once we come into that right standing with God, we begin to live in righteous ways. Living life as God intended in obedience to God's ways according to God's word. According to God's commands. So I'm made right, and in that being right with God, I just begin to live in righteous ways through obedience to him, his word, his spirit, which was, is alive in us. So righteousness means, simply put, being right with God, right relationship, and living right in obedience to God's command. It would also be correct if, if you were to say that righteousness is both a position and a practice. God's righteousness as a position speaks to who I am now in Christ Jesus. It speaks to how God sees me through the finished work of Christ. That's the position. The practice then comes as I begin to live life as God desires, as God originally intended, as God plans those good works for our lives. 1 John 2, 29 says, all who practice righteousness are God's true children. There's again, there's the practice of righteousness, the position out of that is we are God's children. So understanding what righteousness is, I want us to also understand, how does God do this? How did God make you and I? How does God make that position, that practice, that relationship available to us how do we develop how do we maintain how do we increase how do we deepen that spiritual hunger and thirst to pursue righteousness with God all the days of our lives but before we do that let me just ask you a question why should we care why should I care why should you care why should we really care about being right with God? Why should we hunger and thirst for righteousness? I mean, if you've never done that to this point, question may be, I've gotten along, I've made it this far. Why do I even need to be concerned? Why do I even need to pursue this? In a nutshell, it's the only way to live. It's how you were designed and created originally to live in this life and in the life to come. Proverbs 12, 28 says this way, righteousness is the road to life and the path to immortality. In other words, one of the benefits of righteousness is eternal life. It is the fullness and richness of life. Living life as God intended life to be lived. Experiencing life the way God intended life to be experienced, not just in this life, but in the life to come. 
Let's be honest, we're all looking. I mean, it's something that we all hold in common. Every one of us here, we desire to be satisfied in life. We pursue meaning of life. We want to have a sense of satisfaction about our lives. We want to know there's a purpose for us being here. There's a reason you were born here, now, in this time, in this place, God has a purpose, a plan. You're not just here by happenstance. You're not here by, by luck. You're not here because, you know, a, a man and a woman got together. God has a purpose, a plan for you in this day, in this time, in this hour. But also, let's be honest. For a lot of people, they search for that meaning. They're searching for that purpose of their life in empty places and in meaningless endeavors. The book of, uh, of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament, it is probably one of the best summations on one man's attempt at looking for a fulfilling, meaningful, satisfying life through a variety of means. The book of Ecclesiastes was written by a guy who by all standards, by all measures of his time, had it all. His name was Solomon. And Solomon writes this book and, and you kind of get the sense as he's writing it that maybe he's in kind of a midlife crisis. And Solomon reaches this point in his life where he finds his life was pretty meaningless, empty, didn't really have a whole lot of purpose to it. So he decides that he wants to begin to search for the meaning and the purpose of life. And the book of Ecclesiastes is kind of his diary of what he discovers as he pursues to find meaning and satisfaction to life. Solomon starts off in the first chapter and he says, I'm going to try education. I'm going to pursue knowledge. He thought if I can just get smart enough, if I can just read all of the books, if I can just have enough knowledge, then life will be meaningful and rewarding. So says Solomon, got every book. And he just set off to learning everything that could be learned in that day. He read everything he could get his hands on. He pursued every form of knowledge there was to pursue. But listen to his conclusion in chapter 1, verse 18. He said, the greater my wisdom, the greater my grief. To increase knowledge only increases sorrow. Solomon said, I studied everything that was around me. And he said, it became like chasing the wind is how he described it. When I got all that wisdom, got all that education, he said, I realized life was still meaningless and empty, but only greater so than before he started. So he abandoned that and he said, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pursue a great career. And so he became the king of Israel. Great gig in those days. As king, he built these huge, beautiful homes, beautiful vineyards, garden, parks, reservoirs, forests, and groves. And this left him empty and unsatisfied. So he thought, well, maybe money is the answer to my problems. Maybe if I just had more money, 
So he went out and he amassed this enormous fortune. In fact, Solomon became the wealthiest man in the world of his day and maybe the wealthiest man in the history of the world. As a matter of fact, one day the queen of Sheba arrived from Africa just to see with her own eyes the empire that Solomon had built. And she said, I have never seen anything like this on the planet anywhere. So Solomon, he achieved all kinds of untold wealth. He bought himself all kinds of nice things and art. And he said it also left him empty. Life is meaningless. So he thought, well, maybe being famous, maybe by being popular, that's what I'm looking for. That left him empty. He said, well, maybe life is just all about having fun. Maybe I'm taking this way too serious. And so it says he starts partying and having a good time and chasing and pursuing every thrill. So he invested in wine, women, and song, emphasis on wine and women, and says that he partied until his heart was content. He did not deny himself anything, and he said, when it was all said and done, I found myself more empty than when I started. So after all that he pursued, he kind of sums it all up in chapter 2, verse 11. He said, but as I looked at everything I had worked so hard to accomplish, it was all so meaningless. He said, there was nothing really worthwhile anywhere. Solomon came to discover that inside of himself, just as there is in every one of us, this hunger and thirst for significance, for meaning, for fulfillment in life, and then came to the discovery that nothing in the created world was going to give him what he so desperately was searching for. Maybe you're here this morning and you're like Solomon. You're looking at a lot of the same things in a lot of the same places, a lot of the same endeavors that he did, and you're coming to the same conclusion as he came to, that no matter how long, no matter how hard you try, everything you are pursuing to satisfy that inner craving, that inner desire, feels like you're chasing the wind, and you are. The hunger and thirst you feel inside of yourself for meaning, purpose, and fulfillment will never be found in anything. It will only be found in someone, and that someone is God. That's why Jesus says later in the teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 6, verse 33, he said, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all of those other cravings and desires and longings, those needs that God knows you have. Jesus said, you seek first the kingdom, his righteousness, God will take care of. He'll add all the rest so you don't have to. When we make our highest priority are right standing and right living with God than all of the other things that we are tempted to seek after and be consumed by are going to be satisfied and met. So the reason we should care about God's righteousness is because we are ultimately going to pursue one 
or two of those things. We're either going to pursue and go after like Solomon did with all the gusto, all the heart and desire to try to find meaning in the things of life, or we're going to do what Jesus says. We're going to pursue the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all of those other things are going to be taken care of. That inner craving is going to lead you in one of two of those directions. We will pursue the worldly things and be left empty, unfulfilled, chasing the wind, or we're going to seek God's kingdom, his righteousness, and God will take care of providing the rest. And when we position ourselves there, it is then that we will experience contentment, peace, the fullness of joy. But we've got to make that decision. We've got to make that choice. What are we going to pursue? Are we going to respond to God's offer of making us right with him? And then out of obedience, living according to God's commands. Our ability, our position, that invitation to be in right standing with God. It is one of the biggest reasons why God sent Jesus and why Jesus agreed to come. He came to pay for the sins of mankind so we could be forgiven. And once we were forgiven, you know what? We were then positioned to be in right standing with God. And that's what is called the righteousness of God. So God dealt with this whole issue of sin through the cross of Christ. And through that, he has made a way for every one of us to come to that place of right standing with him through Jesus. Every one of us in this room, you've got to decide, do I continue living life the way I have lived it, independent of God, empty, frustrated, unfulfilled, or am I going to abandon my ways and accept God's offer of forgiveness, redemption, and righteousness, right standing with the Father through Jesus, and in that, discover that abundant life. Let's say you've lived a lifetime of crime. You finally get arrested, and you go to court. And in that process, you are found guilty. And as that sentence comes down, you find that your sentence for your lifetime of crimes and bad decisions you've made, the judge is sitting there, in his robe, with his gavel, and he says at the conclusion, you've been found guilty, you've lived a lifetime of crime, and he says, you are going to serve a life sentence for the rest of your life. Gavel comes down, the bailiff comes to take you away. Now just imagine yourself in that position. And then to the shock of everyone, the judge stands up, takes off his robe, lays down the gavel, walks down and stands beside you, and he says to you, the convicted, the sentenced to life individual, I love you, I care about you, and I want to show you grace and mercy, so I'll tell you what, I am going to serve your sentence in your place. What would your reaction be? Essentially, the judge who passed sentence 
is now willing to come and to serve the sentence he passed. The judge has now become your savior. That's exactly what God did for you and I through his son, Jesus Christ. The Bible says in Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. That means when we break God's laws, even just one, that is sin. And it says that sin results in physical, spiritual death. The Bible says in Romans 3, 23, every one of us in this room are guilty of at least one sin. Some of you more than one. And we've fallen short of God's glorious, holy, righteous standards. And the Bible says because of that sin, the sentence has been passed. And that is we are to die. God is the one who determined the penalty of sin to be death. God the Father says the wages, the payout, the consequences of that sin is death. And then the Father says to the son, but because I love them, because I care about them, because they are made in my image and in my likeness, I'm going to send you. And Jesus says, I will go. Because I love them too. I care about them. And so Jesus, God the son, says to God the father, you be the judge, I'll be the savior. I'll go to earth. I will take on the sins of mankind by virtue of my sinless life. And I will stand in their place. I will take the sentence of death upon myself so they can be forgiven and restored in righteousness, in right standing with you. This is why the word of God is called good news, folks, because it is the best news you'll ever receive. It means everything you've ever done wrong in life has already been taken care of on the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus said right before he took his final breath as he hung there on the cross paying for the sins of mankind, he said, it is finished. Not I am finished. It is finished. What is finished? He said the sentence, that wage of death for your sins has been paid for. It's been satisfied. And rather than a death we deserved because of our sins, because of what Jesus did out of his great love, his compassion for you and I, God now offers us the way of righteousness, of right standing with the Father through forgiveness. That's good news. Now, maybe you're here this morning, and I know we get people that are new here every week. And maybe you're just new to this whole concept of salvation. Or maybe you're just hearing this for the first time. There's a book in the Bible that explains this in great detail. It's in the New Testament book, and it's called the book of Romans. There are 10 chapters in there that kind of deal with this whole issue of sin. And Romans chapter 3 really gives a great synopsis. Let me just read a little bit of it uh, to you, starting there in verse 21. But now God has shown us a way to be made right 
with him. It's there. He's revealed it. He's made it known to you and I. And he said it's without keeping the requirements of the law. So it has nothing to do with your behavior. He says we are made right. We are the righteousness of God. We come into right standing with God the Father, he says, when we place our faith, our trust in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes no matter who you are or what you've done. For all have sinned. I told you that all of us in this room, every one of us have fallen short of God's glorious standard. In other words, none of us in this room are perfect. None of us measured up to God's absolute best perfect standard. The only one who has ever lived a perfect life and lived up to God's glorious standard was Jesus. And that is why he was able to take the sins of mankind because he had none. It's why he was able to take our punishment upon himself. Verse 24 continues, yet now God in his gracious kindness, that's his grace, declares us not guilty. We were guilty. Now it says we are no longer guilty. We were unrighteous, but now because of Christ, he can declare us the righteousness of God because of what Jesus did. Who has freed us. You're free this morning. If you choose to be, if you want to be, you're free this morning because he has taken away our sins. For God sent Jesus to take the punishment for our sins and to satisfy God's anger against us. We are made right with God when we believe that Jesus shed his blood, sacrificing his life for us. That's it. That's good news. And it doesn't get any simpler than that. There's a lot of things you may believe, but none of those things are going to result in righteousness. The one thing that you need to believe that's going to result in righteousness is what he says here, that Jesus shed his blood, that Jesus came, he lived, he died, he was resurrected from the dead for you. So that you could be free, forgiven, redeemed, restored. The sacrifice, the death of Christ upon the cross, the scripture says, shows that God was being fair. When he held back, that's his mercy, and did not punish those who sinned in past times, for he was looking ahead and then including them in what he would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness for he himself is fair and just and he declares sinners to be right in his sight when they believe in Jesus that's it that's it that's the good news there's nothing else I'm going to add to that what do you believe about Jesus. That is the one and only thing that matters. It is the one and only thing that stands in between you and a right standing relationship with the Father. What do you do with Jesus? Scripture says, he who has the Son has life. He who has not the Son has not life. 
What do you do with Jesus? What do you do with that offer? What do you do with God's kindness, with his mercy, his compassion, his fairness to you in that regard? Because once you're in right standing with God, the beautiful thing is he'll come in. He'll, he'll enter into a relationship with you, and he will begin to lead you and to guide you in all righteousness through obedience to his word, through obedience to his spirit, to live righteously. Again, once you're positioned in righteousness with God, then you will begin the practice of righteousness by living righteously through obedience to him, through his word, and through his spirit, which is alive and living within you. So whether you're here this morning and hearing this for the first time, or you've been an on-fire, born-again, spirit-filled Christian for 40 years or somewhere in between, the prayer this morning is the same for every one of us in this room, according to the Sermon on the Mount. If you've never felt a hunger or a thirst for God, or the things of God, the most honest prayer you can pray this morning, and it is a prayer that God will hear, and it is a prayer that God will answer. And that would be, God, I do not have a hunger and a thirst for you. Or, God, I've got a little hunger and thirst, but nothing intense, nothing that I would really describe, nothing that would really change my pursuit of you. I know it is something I cannot give myself. If you're there this morning, just simply acknowledge that before God. Just say, God, I need you to give me a hunger and a thirst for you, for your ways, for your word, for your power, for your presence. God, give me a hunger, give me a thirst for that righteousness. And you know what? God will begin to stir and to quicken and to awaken your heart to that hunger and thirst for his righteousness, for his kingdom. For those of us who are saved, whether one day or 50 days, a word of caution in regards to this beatitude. Hunger is one of the most important signs of life. People who are in the process of dying, I've been with them multiple times, lose the sensation of hunger and thirst. At some point in that process towards dying, they lose that desire, they lose that sensation for hunger or for thirst. The same is true in the Christian walk. The lack of spiritual hunger and thirst oftentimes is a sign. It is an indicator of spiritual sickness. You are on your way to death. There are a lot of believers who have no real hunger or thirst for God, for his righteousness, for the things of God. And beloved, that is a warning. It is a red siren warning that you may be in a place of spiritual sickness and heading towards death. If you're here this morning and you've lost that sense, that desire, for the spiritual hunger and thirsting of the Father, of His righteousness, of His kingdom, of His word, of His power, of His presence, the prayer is the same for you. It is abnormal Christianity not to desire God's presence, His word, His power in our lives. It may be very normal in churches and in Christianity in the United States, but from God's viewpoint, from a biblical viewpoint, it is abnormal and a sign of spiritual sickness. We need that. This is what Jesus is teaching 
We need to be aware of our spiritual poverty. We need to be crying out to him in our mourning for more and more of him, for more and a deeper and a more intense hunger and thirst for him. Always knowing no matter how much of God's power and presence we have in our lives, God's desire is to give you more. So our prayer this morning, every one of us here this morning, regardless of where you may find yourself, it is the same. God, give to me, reawaken, reignite, deepen in me a sense of hunger and thirst for you, for your word, for your power, for your presence, for your kingdom, for your righteousness, not just this day, but starting this day and intensify and deepen that all the days of my life. Amen? Let's stand together this morning. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up on the platform. Father, you see our hearts. Everything, Father, is just exposed to you. We hide nothing. And yet, God, your desire by your spirit, by the light of your spirit, God, is just to begin to come and to reveal, to illuminate our hearts, our spirit. God, again, not to expose, to bring us to a place of shame, of guilt, of condemnation. But, God, it is a revelation, God, of where we are. It is, it is a revelation of our spiritual poverty before you. It is a revelation of our ongoing great need for you this morning, God. And Lord, no matter how much we may have of you here this morning, and God, there are some here who have very little, some who have very much. God, your desire, your intent, God, is no matter how much we have, you have so much more for us. And God, that hunger, that thirst for you, for your righteousness, God, is intended to ignite us, to pursue, to go deeper, to long, God, to have that satisfied, to have that fulfilled in your presence. And so, God, this morning, I just pray, Lord, that the one prayer for all of us is, God, would you come? Would you ignite? Would you reawaken? Would you deepen within us that spiritual hunger and thirst for you, for your word, for your power, for your presence, for your kingdom, for your righteousness? And so, Father, we just open our hearts. And, God, we repent we repent from maybe the ways that we have tried to fill this with other things, other relationships. And God, we repent to that. We acknowledge that. God, we turn to you. And we say, God, we want you. We want all of you. And God, we want all that you have for us this morning. God, position our hearts before you this morning in that way. And God, I believe that when you position our hearts before you in that way this morning, that God, you're going to move. So we just invite that moving of your spirit in this morning as, again, we just close in worship. Father, we again just thank you for all that you've done for us through your son, Jesus Christ. Because of his life, his death, his sacrifice upon the cross. God, you have completely satisfied the demands of sin. And all that we're left now is with your son, Jesus Christ.
So Father, for those this morning who have never, ever acknowledged or received Jesus Christ as Lord, Father, I just pray, Lord, that you again would just open the eyes of their heart, their understanding this morning. The Father, simply just by believing that Jesus came, that he died for them. And as they just call out his name, Lord, the Father, you will enter into a relationship with them. So, Lord, if there are people here this morning that have never done that, just simply by proclaiming that Jesus is Lord and just believing that you raised him from the dead is proof of who he is and all that he's accomplished on our behalf, Father, that we would be saved. And we thank you for that. Lord, for those of us who have been saved, but God, again, are just in a place of dryness, of weariness in our spirit. God, I just pray, Lord, that you would just release the floodwaters of your spirit. That, God, they would just again flow mightily. That the rivers of your spirit, Father, would just overwhelm us. God, just sweep us and bring us into the power of your presence, Father. Lord, we just thank you for all of this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we Thanks for listening. For more information about Praise Community Church, including gathering times and events, please visit us at praisecc.org.